father. We are no longer slaves, but sons and your heirs. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to redeem us to yourself. Thank you for rescuing us. We praise you, Jesus, for coming as a lowly baby, being completely humble, born in a stable. You did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to. Please forgive us for our pride. Please forgive us for our self-centeredness. Lord, in this, this season, it's so easy for us to think about ourselves, to focus on the presence that might be waiting under the tree, or to, to fear for all of our missed opportunities or our unmet expectations. Lord, please help us to remember Jesus' birth for us. Lord, please remind us, help us to be a light to our neighbors and to the family that we will be spending time with this holiday. Lord, please be with members of our congregation as some are traveling to visit extended family and friends. Please keep them safe. Lord, we lift up those members of our congregation who have lost loved ones. This Christmas season can be difficult. Please comfort them. Others among us have broken relationships that have not yet been mended. Please grant them peace and patience. And Lord, we pray for the nations of the world that they might all see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for the recent coup in Zimbabwe and the, uh, the resultant unrest there. I pray, Lord, that this would not be a hindrance to your gospel going forth and to people coming to know you, and that even in the surrounding nations in southern Africa, that there would be much uh, rejoicing in Christ and that there would be peace so the gospel could prosper and your church could grow. Our Father, the shepherds whom you sent to see Jesus, they were full of the praises of this newborn child. And all that you told them was true, that this was Christ, the Savior of the world, the King in the line of David. Please fill us now with your Holy Spirit. Grant us to understand what you have to teach us, that we might see and understand the living word, and that we would welcome him into our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, Merry Christmas. I imagine many of you are here this morning because either you care about religion or you happen to be visiting someone who cares about religion. Either way, I'm really glad you're here on this important weekend and that you could celebrate Christmas Eve with us. Christmas Day is traditionally celebrated by Christians in honor of the birth of Jesus Christ. It's a marvelous time to stir up goodwill toward humanity and to give gifts and to throw parties and to binge on cookies. But it's even more marvelous to understand why we bother to do these things. Do we do it to distract? Do we Christians do it to distract ourselves from the pain of life in a world that is tragic, scary, and corrupt? Do we do these things just to follow in the footsteps of inscrutable tradition? We don't know why we do it, but it's just what we've always done and will continue doing. Or do we do this whole Christmas thing 
so we can manufacture a noble-sounding religious vindication of our self-centered materialism. For good or for ill, we often end up celebrating Christmas for some of these very reasons. And so it's important to remind ourselves frequently of God's purpose in sending Jesus. This anchors us in reality, and it assures us that we have something truly worth celebrating. As a church, we've been studying the book of 1 Timothy in the New Testament. It's a letter written by an early Christian missionary to his protege. And the point of the letter is for Paul, the author, to help Timothy, the the protege, to help him understand how the community of God's people ought to behave. And especially he wants... Paul wants to help Timothy see that their behavior is a direct result of their belief in Jesus Christ. The behavior cannot be disconnected from the belief. And so this morning on Christmas Eve, I would like to offer some meditations on the letter's central confession. I'm going to be in chapter 3, verse 16. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 576. This central confession in the letter, it is Paul's summary of the message that we must not only teach, but also live out in our community. And Paul calls this message the mystery of godliness. That's the phrase that the way the ESV translates the phrase. That may not be the most helpful way to state it because the mystery of godliness to to us, the word mystery usually means something that is unclear or irrational. Oh, it's a, it's a mystery. Let's not try to understand it. And the word godliness to us often means being squeaky clean and straight-laced. That person has godliness. You can't touch them. But for Paul, those words, that's not what he's saying. Those aren't the, may not be the best words to represent this. The phrase... By by the word mystery, what Paul means in context, a mystery is more like a secret in the sense of something you didn't know until I told you. Let me tell you a secret. And for Paul, godliness, the word godliness means more like religion in the sense of a relationship with God. Godliness means that upward orientation such that you are right with God. So in this little poem Paul gives us at the center of his letter, I'm gonna, we're gonna slow down here just to unpack this, this little poem. Paul has six short lines, and here he's giving us the six secrets of true religion. And that's why this sermon is entitled, The Six Secrets of True Religion. These are the six keys to a vibrant relationship with God. Would you like to kickstart your spiritual life this holiday season? Would you like to move past the materialism, the shallow relationships you feel, the the family fights, and the inevitable discouragement when it comes and goes? Would you like to understand what you were made for? Here's your chance. Today is the day. 1 Timothy 3, 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, the secret of religion. He, he's talking about Jesus Christ, he was manifested in the flesh, 
vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let me pray once again before I dig into this. Father, please help us to meet Jesus and to be astounded at this secret of what he has done. Please change us and help us to honor you this Christmas and to come to know you in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I dive into this glorious little poem, let me make just one preliminary point, which is that we should notice that among these six secrets of true religion, these six short phrases in this poem, there is very little in there about what you and I actually do. Sure, this assumes that we, the people, must believe, that's number five, he was believed on in the world, and we must proclaim Jesus, verse four, he was proclaimed among the nations. But even the way it's worded is fascinating, because you and I are not the subjects of these verbs. It is not we who believe, or we who proclaim, it is he who was believed in, he who was proclaimed. Jesus is the subject of this whole thing. All six secrets of true religion are primarily about Jesus and not about us. And this in itself is the most important part of these six secrets. The whole point behind the celebration of Christmas. That Christmas is not about what great people we are or even about what sort of people we ought to be. It is not about how pleasant we feel toward humanity during this time of year. Christmas is all about what Jesus has done and about what happened to him. He is the focus. So with that said, let me explain these six secrets about Jesus. And if you want to know the sermon outline, it's right there in verse 16. These six phrases are my six points. Number one, Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Many things are wrapped up in this first secret about Jesus. And it's funny, he doesn't say that he came into existence in the flesh or he was born into life. The fact that he says he was manifested in the flesh assumes that Jesus existed long before he took on flesh. He's getting at the Jesus's eternal pre-existence as God. He was God, with God, the only God always and forever. But he made a choice to do something about humanity's plight. And so the, the point in time came when he took on a human body and soul. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. And he had a ministry on earth going about teaching and doing good. And in that flesh, in that body, Jesus died on a cross for sinners. He was manifested in the flesh, really and truly, as a human. God, the God who was always God now became human. Why does this matter? With all due respect, you cannot have a true religion when people must please their deity by following a set of rules. This is not true religion. 
Because in that case, either the deity is nothing more than a vending machine who becomes obligated to pay out your investment. You put your coins in, he better give you that candy bar back. Or he becomes your plaything here to give you whatever your heart desires. Because if you keep the rules, he owes you. Much of world religion is not a result of trying to know God and to walk with him. But it is a result of trying to control God and manipulate him into giving us what we want. That's what happens when you have a religion that's about keeping lots of rules. And such a deity is not really all that powerful or supreme. Why would you want to worship such a God? If he is someone that we can manipulate and control. Friends, true religion must involve God coming down to us. Otherwise, we could never make our way up to him. We could never do it. Knowing the true God requires that your lawlessness and my lawlessness and your rebellious attitudes and my rebellious attitudes be dealt with and paid for. Only Jesus can do this because he really became a human. He was manifested in the flesh and he took your place. He paid the debt you owed to God so that you could go free. This point, this manifestation in the flesh also matters because it means that true religion offers you a God who knows what it's like to be you. You have a God who's not just pulling strings and flinging lightning at puny mortals, but he has stepped into our skin so he could understand us and draw us close. He was manifested in the flesh. How does this apply? I have one application for you this morning. This Christmas, be astounded at this celebration. Be astounded that God has become one of us. And he died and he he still bears the scars. And he will forever remain human and divine. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we will join with all nations on the last day singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Second, Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. The second secret of true religion is that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. What does that mean? Though Jesus died, he is not still dead. He's not like your great-grandparent or your famous ancestor or your forgettable ancestor or like anyone else who's died and gone and who just survives in memory. No, Jesus died, and then three days later, he rose again from the grave. And this this story that we read, this teaching that he rose again, this was not a metaphor. It was not a parable. It was not inspirational fiction. No, the one whose corpse was laid to rest three days later was reanimated, and, and he began walking around and talking to people and telling them about the kingdom of God. And the Bible teaches that Jesus' resurrection was done 
by the power of God's Holy Spirit in order to vindicate Jesus as the perfect sacrifice, as the innocent victim who took our place and paid for the sin of the world. Romans 1 tells us about the Son of God who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus' resurrection was his vindication, it was his declaration that he is the Son of God in power. And in addition to his resurrection from the dead, there was another event where Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. After his resurrection, this took place a few weeks after the resurrection at a Jewish feast called Pentecost. When God sent his Spirit to fill all of his people, and they started speaking in other languages and doing supernatural things, and God did this really so they could boldly proclaim this story about Jesus to all the world. And the coming of God's Spirit was a vindication of everything Jesus had done and taught. This Spirit was like a deposit paid to those who had trusted Jesus with their lives. Now they had access to God's power and the promise of their own resurrection on the last day. Why does this matter? that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. It matters because if God's Spirit never actually vindicated Jesus, then Jesus might still be dead. And if he was dead, that would mean his sacrifice wasn't actually enough to pay for our sin. And if his sacrifice wasn't enough to pay for our sin, that would mean that our sin hasn't been paid for. And if our sin hasn't yet been paid for, that means that someone still has to pay for it. And if someone still has to pay for it, we are in big trouble because we have no hope to pay the debt ourselves except by spending an eternity in hell. Also, if the Spirit of God hadn't vindicated Jesus publicly through his resurrection and through the day of Pentecost, we might still be wondering whether all those things that Jesus had said were really true or not. We might be wondering whether he was actually who he said he was, God come from heaven, manifested in the flesh. We might still be wondering whether he could do what he said he would do, forgive our sins, unite us to God, lead us into his eternal kingdom. And friends, we'd have no real assurance that Jesus was acting on God's behalf. And he wasn't just some other guy creating a man-made religion. How does this apply? I have one application for you this morning. This Christmas, be astounded at this celebration. Be astounded that Jesus is every bit the king those wise men and angels proclaimed him to be. Be astounded that Jesus is the only one who could save his people from their sins. Be astounded that he got the job done. And be astounded that he is now the king over all kings and the Lord over all lords. Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. The third secret. Jesus was seen by angels. Jesus was seen by angels. His manifestation in the flesh and his vindication by the Spirit 
These things were not exclusively for humans or for human existence. Now, the Bible teaches that Jesus' offer of salvation extends only to humans. Angels have no, fallen angels have no hope of salvation. But, so his offer of salvation extends only to humans, but the ramifications of Jesus' salvation go well beyond human existence into the supernatural, spiritual plane. And sometimes we get so focused on ourselves and our lives that we can completely neglect this huge aspect of Jesus' work. Remember, his birth was attested to by a platoon of angels reporting for duty in the skies over Bethlehem to proclaim the message to a group of shepherds. Remember, the night before Jesus' arrest and execution, he was attended to by angels who strengthened him for the impossible task ahead of him. And remember, when he rose from the dead, it was an angel that rolled the stone away and showed up to tell people about it. And by his resurrection, Jesus unhinged the authority of Satan and his demons to rule this present world with impunity. When the Old Testament prophets were recording their oracles for inclusion in the scriptures, they had premonitions that God was going to do something amazing. That God was going to deal with sin once for all. He was going to usher in his eternal kingdom. He was going to remake the world into a new heaven and new earth. They didn't know exactly how he was going to get that done. And we're told that even the angels were longing to look into these things, to understand what it was all about. Because the angels needed to know that they had chosen the right side, that they were right for not joining Satan in his rebellion in the heavenly places. They, they needed to know that God really had a plan to make everything right again. And so when Jesus actually came and was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit, even the angels couldn't believe what they were seeing. That God, the Son, would actually become a man? That he would take the place of people, of humans? That he would pay their debt? That he would suffer his Father's wrath against their sin? That he would experience death for everyone? And that he would come back from death? to tell them about it and to finish the job once for all, this was simply unbelievable. But friends, you need to know, the spiritual world has never recovered from this seismic upheaval that Jesus caused. Satan was kicked out of heaven forever. He and his minions prowl about like lions, seeking to devour God's people because they know their end draws near. Why does this matter that Jesus was seen by angels? Friends, because of Christmas, because of the coming of Jesus, you have nothing to fear from the supernatural world if you believe in Jesus. We can hear tales of demonic activity, of hauntings, of the occult and supernatural happenings. Don't discount the reality of such things lest you be caught off guard. The Bible tells us that there are many who think they worship a God who really worship demons. 
And these supernatural beings can perform supernatural signs to deceive people. Don't discount the reality of these things, but at the same time, don't ever be afraid of these things if you trust in Jesus, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus took care of everything, not only your sin, but also he took care of your suffering. He will deal with that once and for all. And he took care of the spiritual forces of wickedness over whom he has triumphed and against whom he will always prevail. How does this apply? I have one application for you this morning. This Christmas, be astounded at this celebration. Be astounded that Jesus, this baby in the manger that we celebrate, he is the Lord not only of earth, but also of heaven. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he has put them to open shame. By the way, you catching my pattern? I have one application for you this morning. I really want you to be astounded by these six secrets of true religion. And I've been praying for you leading up to this sermon that your Christmas celebration this year would be characterized by more astonishment than anything else. Number four, secret number four, Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. This fourth secret is that this story about Jesus went out into the whole known world of the first century. The same author of 1 Timothy, Paul, he says in another letter, in Colossians chapter 1, he, he says, don't shift from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. He says this gospel has been proclaimed in the whole known world. And he says that this gospel must continue to go out. Matthew 24, in there, Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when Paul lists this fourth secret of true religion, that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations, maybe he's viewing it from the, the limited perspective of the Roman Empire in his day. It really did go out to all nations. Or maybe he's stepping back and looking with the grand perspective of all history. It will go out to all the nations. I'm not sure which he has in mind, but it doesn't really matter because the point is the same. The message about Jesus, the message of Christmas is for Everyone. For everyone. In Luke chapter 2, the angel even telegraphed this fact. The angel says to these shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Why does this matter that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations? If this message holds great joy for all the people, there are at least two implications. We need to be aware of the first implication is that this message is for you. It is for you. It is for you. Perhaps you don't consider yourself a Christian. Or maybe you consider yourself a Christian, but you're not really sh even sure what that means. It's just a label. Maybe your life has been chock full of behaviors and words and events and choices you're not proud of. 
Maybe you think religion is overrated and you're doing just fine on your own. Maybe you grew up going to church, but you left after somebody in the church abused you or hurt you deeply. You left and you never looked back. Please understand, this message is for you. It's not just for the religious people sitting here today. But this message is also for the religious people sitting here today. This message is for you. It's really not based on anything you've done or anything that's been done to you as painful as those things are. In fact, understanding this message of Jesus and the abuse he suffered on your behalf, that can help you finally to make sense of your own pain. It can help you to be honest about it and not stuff it down. It can help you to work through it and not keep punishing yourself or everybody else for it. You are not, and until you die, you will never be outside the rescuing power of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the first implication, that this message is for you. But the second implication is that this message is for everyone you meet. This message is for everyone you meet. Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. There is nobody who crosses your path who is beyond the rescuing power of the good news about Jesus Christ. Not the neighbor who swears up a storm every time he's doing yard work. Not the Middle Eastern graduate student who wears the hijab and and has religious rituals that seem totally like you can't ever penetrate them. Not the Asian professor whose academic jargon and broken English combine to make him nearly incomprehensible. Not the homeless guy who hangs out in the Sklo library to stay warm during the cold months. This message is for everyone you meet. How does this apply? I have one application for you this morning. This Christmas, be astounded at this celebration. Be astounded that Jesus is the king of the whole world. His story is one of great joy for all the people. As a secondary application, on a personal note, I would would ask you if you could pray for, for me and my family. Later this week, we have a devout Muslim from Saudi Arabia who's moving in with our family for the next semester. Please pray for us. Pray with us that we could get to know him, that we could come to understand and respect his culture and his religion. Please pray that we would not offend him unintentionally and pray especially that we could show him the beauty and the glory of these secrets of true religion that are found only in Jesus Christ. The fifth secret is that Jesus was believed on in the world. This fifth secret of true religion says a few truly remarkable things. First, it says that the only thing expected of those who would know God is that they believe on Jesus. There is no other sacrifice required. There are no demands that you first clean yourself up. Before coming to him, all you have to do is believe. Which is to say, all you have to do is trust in Jesus for your life. Give up all claims to your own accomplishment. Throw in your lot 
with this ancient teacher who gave himself up for your sins. That's the first remarkable thing. All that's expected of those who would know God is that they believe on Jesus. But second, second remarkable thing here is that this secret alludes to the fact that the true religion about Jesus bringing people close to God, this secret will take over the entire world. He was believed on in the world. Jesus' opponents tried to snuff this thing out from the very beginning. They posted a guard at Jesus' tomb when he died so that his disciples couldn't come and steal the body and pretend that he came back to life. When he did actually come back to life and the angels showed up, they then paid off the soldiers who witnessed it. And then they tried to kill off the early Christ followers who would rather die than stop proclaiming this message in all the world. Jesus' opponents tried to snuff it out from the very beginning, and they have been trying ever since to snuff it out. All the way down to today, when people claim this story to be mythical, or out of date, or intolerant, or barbaric. But the funny thing is that this story has taken on a life of its own, by the power of God's Holy Spirit working in this world. And this story, this gospel message, has infected the deepest and the highest levels of society in all corners of the globe. Do you understand that Christianity is increasingly popular in its traditional form, in its basic form that some consider barbaric, intolerant, It's increasingly popular with academics, with people in positions of power, with the working class, with the underprivileged, with all kinds of people. Jesus is believed in the heartland of America, in the jungles of South America, in the underground of communist China, and across the islands of the world. Why does this matter? Why does this secret matter? Because contrary to popular conception, This movement of Jesus Christ is not dying out. It is not growing stale. I've heard people claim even that things are getting increasingly worse for Christians and Christianity. The world is going down the tubes. And it's evidenced, one evidence of this fact is that there were more Christians executed for their faith in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined. But friends, let's not ignore what this really means. This, do you see what this really means? It means that there were more Christians to be executed in the 20th century than in all centuries previously combined. Christianity is not on its way out. How does this apply? Friends, I have one application for you this morning. This Christmas, please, Be astounded at this celebration. Be astounded that what began as a tiny disturbance in a backwoods village with a few shepherds and an engaged couple and the birth of an unexpected child, that that tiny disturbance is taking over the world. And not with a sword of steel to conquer and destroy to put down dissidents, 
I do not condone, and the Bible does not condone, the taking up of arms in the name of Jesus Christ to attack people we disagree with. No, this movement is taking over the world through persuasion, through self-sacrifice, and an offer to people to give up what they can't keep in order to gain what they can never lose. And this leads into our final secret of true religion, which is that Jesus was taken up in glory. The sixth secret of true religion is that though Jesus was born in a lowly position, he enters a poor family, he is laid in a feeding trough, there was no room for them in the lodging, the king at the time tries to murder him, Though Jesus was born in a lowly position, he did not stay in that lowly position. After completing his work, after paying for sin, after establishing his kingdom, after conquering the spiritual forces of wickedness, after coming back from the dead to tell us about it, he was lifted up into heaven. Now, who does that? He took his seat at God's right hand. And from there he shall reign until all his enemies are put beneath his feet. He was taken up in glory. And he will come back again the same way he departed, with power and great glory, to once and for all do away with all competitors, all rebels, all scoffers who resist him. He established his kingdom already through service and sacrifice and mercy. And we now grow his kingdom through service and sacrifice and mercy. But friends, the time will come when service and sacrifice and mercy are not his method, but full justice and righteousness will be executed. Those who refuse to rely on Jesus' payment for their sin will have to make their own payment for their sin instead. When those who attack and damage God's people will be attacked in return and squashed like so many bugs, and the time will come when death will be defeated forever and corruption and injustice will be no more. Why does this matter that Jesus was taken up in glory? Because, friends, Christmas usually seems like a time of peace and rest. And there's a sense in which that is true, but, friends, Christmas is also a time of incredible urgency. You don't have forever. And the King of Kings will not tolerate resistance to his reign forever. Time is running out. This year is the year for you. Today is the day for you to believe in Jesus, to hope in him, to Rely on him for your life, for your satisfaction, for your joy. Please don't wait another year.
please don't let this Christmas come and go such that you forget about it once again. Please don't waste another moment. The king of glory was taken up in glory. He will come back when you least expect it. Will you be ready to meet him? How does this apply? I have one application for you this morning. This Christmas, be astounded at this celebration. Be astounded that the baby in the manger is not in that manger anymore. Be astounded that that baby is neither safe nor sentimental. He has all glory and all power and every knee will bow to him. Some will bow willingly and others unwillingly. But please don't resist him. Through my preaching, he is calling to you right now, asking you to join him and not fight him anymore. In conclusion, some of you have been worshiping Jesus for years. And my prayer for you this Christmas is that you would take a deeper dive into the mystery of godliness, into the secrets of true religion, and that you would be more astounded than ever before at this Son of David, this Savior who is Christ the Lord, who was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory.